What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all-around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Today we'll be speaking with a professor and author about the complexities around Alzheimer's disease. David Teplow has an accomplished and illustrious career. He joined the faculty at UCLA in 2005, where he currently is a professor in residence in the Department of Neurology, a member of the Molecular Biology Institute and the Brain Research Institute, the director of the Biopolymer Laboratory, and the interim director of Mary S. Easton Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research at UCLA. Dr. Teplow has published 100 original articles and 40 reviews, book chapters, and commentaries. Eliezer Sobel helps manage the at-home care of his mother currently in her 17th year of Alzheimer's disease. He was inspired by that experience to create a unique series of picture books for people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, Blue Sky, White Clouds, a book for memory-challenged adults, and L'Chaim, pictures to evoke memories of a Jewish life. He was also the editor of the New Sun magazine, the Wild Heart Journal, blogs for psychology today, and has led creativity workshops and retreats all over the U.S. So welcome, David and Eliezer. Thank you. Thank you. David, please set the stage for this discussion. Tell me a little bit about what this means, its origins, and some of the pathology behind it. Well, Alzheimer's disease is a disease that was named after a German pathologist, Elois Alzheimer. He gave a talk in 1906 about his first case, which was a woman who was suffering from memory deficits and behavioral problems. He did the first microscopic studies of the disease showing two features in the brain, which we still have today, one of which is amyloid plaques, which are basically proteins which are deposited in the brain outside of cells, and neurofibrillary tangles, which again are proteins deposited inside neurons. And both of these are associated with damage and loss of neurons, which gives rise to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And I think as everyone will know, one of the major symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is memory loss, one of the earliest symptoms in the disease. And that's followed by losses, understanding what objects are, who people are, what words are, and eventually changes in a person's physical abilities, for example, to dress themselves, to do various tasks of daily living. And eventually this disease, unfortunately, and inexorably leads to death, usually between five and 10 years after incidence, but that can vary dramatically. So you mentioned that it was discovered, and I'm wondering, does that make it a new disease, or does the research show that it has been around for hundreds of years? I think probably it's been around for quite a while. The disease is a disease of aging. It's unusual for people to get the disease before the age of 65. And back 100 years ago, people didn't live that long, so you didn't see the disease. And I think that's one of the issues that we have today with the increasing incidence of Alzheimer's disease, and that issue is that people are getting older, and so they now have a chance to get the disease, where, as before, they died before the age where they might get the disease. And what do you have for me in the way of stats? How many people does this affect a year? Uh, What is the current cumulative total in the U.S.? Well, right now, the total is about 5.5 million people. 
We expect to have 500,000 cases, 500,000 new cases this year. And the statistics are quite alarming in the sense that by 2050, it's estimated that the number of cases will double to more than a million. And that means at that time, that we'll have one new case about every 33 seconds. This is a very, very serious social issue, the number of people getting the disease. And does this affect certain regions? Do we have a higher ratio than, say, other countries? Well, the, the ratio really has to do with how long people live and how healthy they are. It might not be surprising to know that one of the greatest impediments to getting the disease is just being healthy. People want to know, how can I prevent the disease? And they can do so by being healthy. And what does that mean? That means exercising, having a heart-healthy diet, uh, not having too much sugar because diabetes is a precipitating factor for Alzheimer's disease. The so-called Mediterranean diet, which includes not only issues with food, but also socialization, can be helpful in preventing Alzheimer's disease. Can you speak further about that socialization in what ways? In the way that anything that stimulates the brain is considered to be helpful. So if you are, for example, having a healthy meal with friends or with family, having conversations, that's stimulating for the brain. And we view the brain much like we view a muscle. If we work that muscle, it gets stronger. And the same is true with the brain. If we work the brain, if we create new connections between nerve cells, then we create what's called a reserve so that if Alzheimer's disease affects a person, they have a little more muscle to lose before they start being unable to do things. And so the old adage that doing crossword puzzles, for example, are good for the brain, is that some of the other kind of stimulus you would suggest? Yeah, absolutely. So active stimuli, not just sitting, for example, and being passive, but doing crosswords, doing Sudoku, playing bridge, uh, talking with friends, anything like that that actually requires you to use your brain is considered to be helpful. So you're talking about the numbers of people who are projected to increase, let's say, in the next decade or so. What's the most common consensus among scientists regarding this factor? I think most of us feel that it's simply because the population is healthier now than it used to be, which means people are living longer. And the kind of diseases that uh, Alzheimer's represents, which are these classes of dementing illnesses, tend to occur in late life. They're generally late life diseases. So if you live this long, there's an increasing chance that you will contract the disease. In fact, some studies suggest that by the age of 85, half of people will be demented. Now, that may not be true, but it just illustrates the point that this is a disease of aging, and if we live that long, our chances of getting the disease are higher. Does this mean that other factors like the environment, what we eat, how we live, don't impact it as much? I'm glad you brought up the issue of factors because Alzheimer's disease, unlike many other diseases, is considered a multifactorial disease. So there are many factors, each of which may not be particularly huge in itself, but together add up to increasing your risk or decreasing your risk for the disease. So as I said earlier, if you lead a healthy life, healthy being defined as exercise, heart healthy, good diet, mental stimulation, that will be the best thing you can do to decrease your Alzheimer's risk. And what are some of the myths that you repetitively hear in your own work that you really want to emphasize to the listener? Oh, I love that question. 
because it's one of the things that drives scientists crazy. Scientists base their opinions on facts. And one of the recently proposed causes of Alzheimer's disease is aluminum pans that people cook with. And I love that one because there's absolutely no evidence that that causes the disease. But somehow that got out into the public and people started believing that and stopped using aluminum frying pans. I think that was not reasonable based on the scientific evidence. Using your cell phone, having your cell phone to your ear, that's not going to increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease. There is a whole class of potential causes which have no scientific basis. Those are just two of them. And is there any scientific evidence that there is any other external factor which is a major contributing factor? Well, one of the things that is and has long been a factor in risk is uh, head injury. So uh, traumatic brain injury, concussions, for a long time that's been in, for example, Muhammad Ali's case, he didn't have Alzheimer's disease, but he had Parkinson's disease, which in late stages is a dementing illness. And there's a particular form of Parkinson's disease that's related to boxers. And he had that disease. And Alzheimer's disease, in the same way, has a higher risk if you've had uh, brain injury. Before I turn to Eliezer, I'm curious about what the passion is for you in doing so much work around this. What is it that you're hoping to either conclude? What is it that you're looking for in all of the research that you continue to process? Well, I think most clinicians and scientists want to cure disease. That's the bottom line. I've wanted to do that since I was a child. I first got involved in studies of human forms of what people might know as mad cow disease. I was working with uh, Dr. Stanley Kruzner, who later won the Nobel Prize for that research. And then uh, when I went to Harvard Medical School, I set up a laboratory about 25 years ago to study Alzheimer's disease. We want to understand the disease. We want to understand its causes. And by understanding those causes, be able to design treatments for people who have the disease and preventatives to stop the disease from occurring in the first place. And that's a passion that most of us have. Do you envision that you will reach that goal before your life is over? I don't think I will, but I think the message to the general public is that there's been tremendous progress over the last two or three decades in which I've been involved in it. And the progress, I think, has accelerated exponentially most recently. So I'm uh, very positive about the outlook for the future. And Eliezer, you've written two books which focus on Alzheimer's, and one has been subtitled A Book for Jews with Alzheimer's. Tell me briefly about your desire to write this, and um, why the emphasis on Jews? The books are not about Alzheimer's. They're actually books for the Alzheimer's patient, which is what made them unique. Our family was virtually certain that my mother had long ago lost all of her language skills. She had stopped speaking in English. She had some gibberish phrases, but she could no longer speak or read as far as we knew. And one day I came upon her in the living room thumbing through a magazine, and I heard her reading the big print headlines aloud in English. And I was like floored that my mother could still read, even if it was just two or three words. So I thought, well, I'll just run out and get her a picture book designed for Alzheimer's patients. You know, I just wanted something that had very simple, clear, beautiful photographs with a two or three, four-word caption in big print. And I found nothing at Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and I searched. I finally called the National Alzheimer's Association, got hold of their librarian for the whole country, and she said to me, 
Well, we have over 20,000 books for the caregiver of people with memory loss. And I said, well, no, I want someone for my mother who's the patient. And there was dead silence on the end of the line. Eventually, she thought of one or two titles from a particular author, which I did order and we used with my mother, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. So I realized there was an amazing lack of resources for the patient. And a lot of people who have been caregivers know that it's really hard to find activities to do with an Alzheimer's patient, apart from plunking them down in front of the television set. I mean, we're getting a little more sophisticated now. People are learning the effects of music and putting headphones on patients. But there's nothing more depressing than going to a memory unit at a nursing home and have the person showing us around say, oh, and this is activities hour, and we go into the room, and there's half a dozen or a dozen people nodding off in wheelchairs while a poor activities director is in front of the room trying to throw a balloon or something. It's hard to find things to engage people at certain stages. And if you're creative, as I, I'm sort of a creative guy, I found ways to spend an hour with my mother playing with a pile of coins. We'd move the quarters over here, stack the shiny pennies here, build a little house with the dimes. And I showed my father, who was her primary caregiver for 14 years, I said, Dad, see, there's lots you could do with Mom. You, you could just put the coins away and do this tomorrow, and she won't even remember. And he called me the next day and said, Ah, it didn't work, Al. She couldn't tell the difference between a nickel and a penny. In other words, he was stuck in a very linear, rational approach. He, he was not, couldn't step out of the box into the world of creative play. So a lot of people are like that, especially, I mean, he was a mathematician and he was approaching 90. So then I came up with uh, this idea for these books. And I, the first one was for the general population of Alzheimer's patients. The second one, I just felt like, you know, one title there's a big gap in resources and I needed to do more than one. I'd like to do a whole series. So I was just trying to think of an idea for the second one in the series. And given that I'm Jewish and my mother was a Holocaust refugee, there was a lot of rich Jewish culture in the life I grew up in. And I realized there's millions of Jewish people who have Alzheimer's and it was just another audience to approach. That's really the only reason just to have a second book in the series for a particular population. I expect there'll be others as I think of them. David, does this segment of the population, Jewish people, disproportionately get Alzheimer's? Is there any kind of research on that? Uh, a good question, and I haven't been able to find anything that says that Jews are, are particularly susceptible or resistant to the disease. Some data, which I think is pretty clear, shows that those who are more intelligent, more educated, and are healthier have lower Alzheimer's risk. And again, this is probably because of this uh, compensatory or this intellectual reserve that they have, uh, meaning that they have to lose a lot more neurons before you see symptoms. Mm -hmm. And did these books serve the purpose as you intended, Eliezer, for your mother? Did you feel like... Yeah, oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. she, she would pour over them. And, you know, the book came out a few years after the idea, and her language had continued to deteriorate. So she, she read a few of the captions, but mostly she ended up flipping through the book and focusing in on a particular photograph for maybe five, even ten minutes at a time, almost like meditating on it. And 
if it was a picture of an elderly couple, for example, she would be stroking their cheeks on the page. Oh. And, and yeah, it, it provided also an opportunity for a caregiver to connect with the patient. And the main lesson I learned, I, you know, I come to this conversation the opposite end of the spectrum from David, who's obviously unbelievably learned. I come as a son, period. I'm just a son with a mother. And what I learned over the years was the single most important thing is connection and love. And, you know, my friends, when they heard my mother at Alzheimer's, would often come up to me with this nervous look on their face and sort of awkwardly or fearfully say to me, does she still know who you are? As if that was the worst possible thing they could imagine. And I would always think to myself, I don't even really know who I am. Why would I care if she does? Because I had discovered that we had this ongoing connection, even as she forgot my name, even as she no longer knew I was her son, there was still on a, to be poetic, a soul to soul level. There was a delight in being together. And actually, you know, unlike the tragedy that most people consider this disease to be, and it is on many levels for us too, we also had, of the 17 years, um, at least 12 of those had many moments of delight and connection and love and a lot of laughter and healing. My relationship with my mother was closer than it ever had been. We touched more. We sang together. All sorts of things that were unlike the way I grew up. Um, as a Holocaust refugee, she was a very fearful and private person. And I went to a psychic early on, and I said, oh, I'm afraid my mom's losing her memory. And the psychic said, I have a feeling your mom's going to be happier without her memories. And that proved to be true. She just very gradually shed all those social, fearful constrictions and became this open, loving, laughing um, person. That it, it, She was almost angelic. People would feel blessed to be around her because she was, it was like being around a newborn. David, is there a blood test or some test you can take to find out if you have this predilection in yourself or obviously in your family? There is no, no FDA-approved blood test for Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease generally occurs in what's called a sporadic form, meaning there's no, there's no known genetic basis for the disease being caused. But there are a small number of families in the world that have genetic forms of the disease. Those are called familial Alzheimer's disease. And there we know that there are particular changes in a small group of genes that give rise to Alzheimer's disease. Only in a research setting uh, can those people have their... Uh, DNA examined to see if they actually have a mutation or not. But for the general public, Alzheimer's disease diagnosis still remains a uh, diagnosis of exclusion. In other words, if there are no other factors that contribute to memory loss or behavioral changes, uh, and based on family reports and some simple um, psychological testing and physical examination, doctors are pretty good at diagnosing the disease. And the experience that Eliezer was talking about, his mother having gotten more angelic and obviously sweeter and probably nicer, is that a facet of this disease? The mother's presentation sounds absolutely fabulous. And one of the things that many patients have in common with her 
is the maintenance of memories from earlier years, especially from childhood and growing up. Songs in particular can be things that patients remember. They may be able to sing show tunes for, from the time they grew up and not remember anything else, including their family or what an object is, but they can sing, they can sing those songs. But other patients may present with delusions, with anxiety, with paranoia. So this is not a disease that can be generalized to everyone. I would like to interject that I don't want to sugarcoat our experience because 17 years gave us the opportunity to see all the stages, including a period where my mother was chasing people around the house with steak knives, throwing heavy objects, and screaming at herself in the mirror, and we had to put her in a psych ward for 10 days. And we were lucky because they came up with a medication that calmed all that down, and we never had a repeat of that. But we've seen the other side. It wasn't all roses by any means. And David, is there ever any warning about what facet this disease would take on? Uh, I'm not aware of that. Uh, Generally, families and patients complain of memory loss. And I want to assure the listeners that memory loss is a normal part of aging. I know people quite often forget things and realize that their memory is not as good as it used to be. That's normal aging. What isn't normal aging is when you forget where your house is, what your kids' names are. That's not normal age-related memory loss. And in a particular patient, would they know that they have Alzheimer's? Would they have a sense that something's really amiss? Absolutely, because the disease progresses quite slowly. It can progress very slowly and very insidiously so that the person eventually realizes that their memory is not as good as it has been, but generally the family understands that first. And it can create great anxiety. My wife, who's a therapist and worked in an Alzheimer's facility, was talking to a patient, and the patient in tears said, I don't know what I know. Hmm. And so at those stages, it can be quite traumatic for the patient. Can I give you a few examples of the kind of changes that happen following memory loss that that David was referring to? Sure. That are also kind of common, you know, that you hear about people putting their shoes in the refrigerator, for example, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my mother had some very funny ones. Uh, We we would do a visual Skype call every day because I was living out of the state. And almost every day, she would stare at the computer screen kind of quizzically, and then finally at some point, she would say, how long are they going to keep you there inside that little box? (laughs) And I'd say, oh, they're going to let me out soon, Ma, as soon as we're finished talking. And she would say, well, are they feeding you in there? I said, yeah, they're feeding me. She says, well, let me get you a glass of water. She would get up and leave the room, bring back some water. Or one day, she was standing next to the bathroom, And she shouted down the stairs, where's the bathroom? And I said, it's directly to your right. But directly to her right was the laundry hamper right before the bathroom door. So she opened the laundry hamper, looked through all the dirty clothes and said, I don't see a bathroom here. A lot of little incidents. One last one. We're sitting at the kitchen table and she's looking at a glass of apple juice and she's tapping it with a fork. She's lifting it up and turning it, looking at it from all directions puts it down and finally says to me, I wonder what size brassiere it wears. That's beyond memory loss. It's, it's another world she's living in. I'm 
struck both by the poignancy of these stories, and yet there's so much sadness. Um, well, like I said, because she was so much happier, laughing a lot, and with and the, these kind of incidents didn't make me sad because she would laugh along with us. It wasn't like we were laughing at her. It was just we were enjoying ourselves together. Of course, there's a lot of sadness over time. But like I said, the, the feeling of connection and love that persisted through all the changes kept me going. And it was far more important to me than the sadness of, oh, she doesn't know my name. It became like, well, so what? She still loves me. There's still this feeling here between us. And all the aides would say, whenever you come in, you get the biggest smile and the biggest greeting. I mean, she knew there was a special connection. I didn't need her to know the specifics of the content mm -hmm. for me to feel like she was still there and we still had this relationship. I might be unusual. I know it was much harder on my dad, who was there every day, and they were married nearly 70 years. It was much harder for and sadder for him to lose his partner. Mm -hmm. You know, I was step removed. We only have a few minutes, and David, I'm wondering, what are some of the most exciting medical breakthroughs, and what do you expect to see in that regard in the near future? Well, I think there are a couple things that uh, are important, one of which is understanding the genetics of the disease. That is, how do genes contribute to the disease? How do genes contribute to Alzheimer's risk? And as I said before, we're finding that many different genes can produce increases in risk for Alzheimer's disease. And we want to understand how these genes work together to produce that risk. And if we understand that, because of tremendous advances in genetic technologies, we may be able to manipulate those genes so that one does not get Alzheimer's disease, even though genetically they've been found to be at risk for the disease. Another thing that companies are doing are developing immunotherapeutics for Alzheimer's disease. So much like you'd be immunized uh, against childhood diseases, you immunize a patient to produce antibodies or you give preformed antibodies to patients to try to eliminate these amyloid plaques that I mentioned in the beginning of the broadcast. Those trials have shown some encouraging results, not nearly what we'd like to see, but that's an active area of research. And then, of course, classical drugs that you would just take as a pill that attack certain aspects of the disease pathogenesis are also being developed. So a very, very active development process. And when I mentioned that progress towards understanding and treating the disease has accelerated exponentially recently, I say so because when I started in the field, there were none of these things. And so there's been tremendous advances over the last couple of decades. Last question for you. Does politics ever enter into the amount of money that you are given to work with? And if so, does this new change of an administration mean that you think there will be a change in the amount of research that can be accomplished in the next couple of years? Well, so since I'm Jewish, I'm going to answer your question with a question. <laughs> when does politics ever not enter into the question? Right. The vast majority of biomedical research in the United States is funded by the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. The National Institutes of Health are funded by Congress. So by definition, that's a political funding process. The NIH has had funding decreases uh, over the last five or 10 years in terms of, of real buying power. And it looks like it's going to get substantially worse. What that's going to do is a couple of things. For, for Alzheimer's disease research, 
it's going to paralyze the research. It's going to prevent people from getting the treatments they need. And in general, it's going to put U.S. science way behind the rest of the world. So there's a tremendous political and social component to science funding. I've been joined today by Professor David Teplow and author Eliezer Sobel in a very riveting and actually very poignant, I'm, I'm very touched by this discussion regarding Alzheimer's disease. Thank you so much, David and Eliezer, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting us. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of Conversations with Sima for Women Over 40. Thank you so much to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care. <laughs>